You may be seated. I'd like for the uh, Sunday School Board members, please, to remain standing on the platform. I want them all to stand. These are the men from your districts that are doing the work in the respective districts, and we appreciate every one of them very, very much. God bless you. Let's all give them a great big hand. Okay. God bless them. Thank you. We want to thank you for your liberal offering this morning. We believe God's going to meet every need. How many believes he can do that? He's a God of faithfulness, and he never has failed. Praise God. Now we come to the very, very important part of the service today, the ministry of the Word of God. I've enjoyed the preaching in this conference, and I know we're going to have a great time this morning. And we appreciate Brother Huntley from Raleigh, North Carolina, our speaker. Let's give him a big hand as he comes right now. Brother Huntley, God bless you as you come. Thank you, sir. Praise the Lord, everybody. Let's all stand right now and worship Jesus together, shall we? Lord, we magnify your mighty name. Hallelujah. We exalt you, Jesus. We praise your wonderful name. I can only speak for myself, but I, I want to tell you from the very depths of my heart this morning, my favorite service of the week is Sunday morning. I enjoy preaching on Sunday morning more than any other scheduled time of ministering that I'm privileged to do. Usually, ministers feel that it is the toughest time, but there's always something very, very sweet very close presence of the Lord that we enjoy in a Sunday morning service. I want to say thank you to the Sunday School Committee for allowing me this great privilege and also entrusting me with this moment of confidence to minister to you the Word of the Lord. I want to commend Brother McClinock, Brother Nation, for the superb job that they do in leading this department of our movement. It is indeed a very vital portion of the work of the Lord. One that I feel needs elevation, exaltation, and even further exaggeration. We really need to minister to our children and reach them with this great gospel. Aren't you glad you're in the church today? I'm glad I know the Lord. I'm glad I'm in the church. For the sake of time, let me carry you quickly to the word of the Lord. I'd like to turn your attention to St. John's Gospel, chapter number six. The Gospel of St. John, chapter number six. I know of no service that I'd rather be a part of than ministering for and to and with our children. John chapter 6 and verse number 9. St. John chapter 6 and verse 9. There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? 
And Jesus said, make the men sit down. It's really something when a lad can come to church and cause men to sit down. And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down. And likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. There is a lad here today, Andrew said, who has a prepared lunch. Galatians said that Jerusalem, or the spiritual, or the church, is the mother of us all. I'd like to preach for a few moments on this subject. What have you packed in my lunchbox, mommy? What have you packed in my lunchbox, mommy? God bless you, you may be seated. I pack tenderness in your lunchbox, darling. Kisses in the peanut butter. And I hope that you'll get along with your friends. Love and respect one another. There's a dollar for some chocolate milk. And inside the box, a yearning that our child will drink it all and still have a thirst for learning. There's patience wrapped in a plastic bag and an apple and a hope that when you have a problem, you'll be confident and cope. I packed for you several napkins to wipe a dirty face and mop up some of our sooty world and clean up air and space. We want you to respect and obey your teachers. Take pride in your education we watch you grow, and we love you so. You are a source of inspiration. I've sent my blessings, little love, and put inside a single tear. I cried when you left for nursery school, and now you're gone all year. Be careful when you cross the street. I'll be with you in my prayer. And promise you when you come home that I'll be waiting there. What have I packed for you, my darling? 
besides cookies filled with cream, part of your mother and father, and most of all, our dream. Now, the little boys are men. And how I long for those long ago days when I could pack a lunchbox again. What have you packed in my lunchbox, Mommy? It is with intense concern and care for the lad and for the land that I like to preach to you on this subject this morning. In my scriptural study and looking to the word of the Lord, there are things that greatly intrigue me. Some things that many times do not seem to be spelled out in black and white from the scripture and they require some additional studies, some insight from the spirit. And you have to look a little closer than the obvious. Sometime back, I became very concerned, very much interested and in, in, intrigued as to how it was possible that out of an idolatrous surrounding and a heathenistic hour, what did God find in Abraham's resume? What were his qualifications or his unique distinction? that calls God to select him and to choose him. The distinction of Abraham would be a man of historical antiquity. His name would never die. A man that we would call a father of a nation. He would become the friend of God, a depository of truth a caretaker and a custodian of revelation. He would be the fleshly tributary through which redemption and the very person of God would flow to mankind. What was the unique qualification that God sought to choose such a man as this? I believe we find the key that unlocks the favor and the trust of God. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, when God said of Abraham, for I know him, that he will command his children after him. I believe that is the great ingredient that God was looking for in such a man that he would entrust heavenly treasures and marvelous revelations. I was also intrigued to discover this. We're preaching about children today and their significance and their importance. And I think the church needs to arise as never before and put a high priority on the salvation of our children. Ladies and gentlemen, when you save an adult, you get a half-life. But when you save a child, you save a whole life. I noticed in my study that Abraham's selection and also the culmination of the covenant that God would make with him 
involved his children. In both instances, God called Abraham because he knew he would command his children. God culminated his covenant with Abraham when Abraham laid his son on the altar. It was then that God spoke and said, now I know that you fear me. And I believe you could easily insert in the place of fear the word love. God was never totally convinced of who Abraham was and what Abraham would do until he laid his son on that altar. And God says that settles it once and for all. I now swear I will bless you. Our true dimension of love for God is revealed when we are willing to put our children on the same altar that we have built. I want to address what I feel in the spirit. There seems to be a dominant spirit sweeping in many areas that we want to allow our children, safeguard them and shield them. But church, I'm telling you, if the Pentecostal altar is good enough for the mom and dad, it's good enough for the children. And this United Pentecostal Church must arise today and say, I went to an altar and my children will go to an altar. My mother-in-law was hesitant, reluctant to receive the Spirit and prayed for quite a while. The thing that seemed to keep her from receiving the Holy Ghost, she thought she had surrendered all. But then God said, give me your children. She was a single parent. They were very precious to her. With the fear and uncertainty of a new convert, she was reluctant to surrender to God. But the moment she said, all right, God, I give you my children, and she laid them on that altar. God filled her with the power of the Holy Ghost. Missionary Ward and his family spoke to the ladies auxiliary here at, at this conference. And to the ladies, Missionary Ward began to tell them how that he and his wife were ready to go, ready to obey God, to go to the land of their calling. As every normal natural parent, they had one concern, and that was the well-being of their children. Not in doubt or unbelief or distrust, but just in the humanity of flesh. They had some concerns about taking their children across the seas. And Missionary Ward said God spoke to him and said, you can stay here and take care of your children, or you can go over there and I'll take care of your children. I still believe what Paul said when he said, I believe and am persuaded that he is able to keep what we've committed unto him against that day. I'm calling this church to go back to giving your children to God. Bring your children back to Pentecost. Don't leave them home during prayer meetings. Don't leave them home during Bible studies. 
Don't leave them out of the kingdom of God. Let's bring our children back to the Pentecostal altar. As a matter of fact, would you consider with me another moment? That what we really believe and who we really are in God is many times glaringly exposed in our children. It is glaringly exposed in our children. Redemption and salvation was made available to our world when the Father laid down his own flesh, which we call his Son. That's what opened salvation to the whole world. When the Father laid down his own flesh. It is our tendency of nature to seek to shield, shelter, and guard our own flesh. And sometimes folks say, my children will never have to sacrifice like I sacrificed. They'll never know the loneliness that I knew or the pain that I knew of working for God. May I inject one thing here? Then never expect them to be what you are. Because that's what made you what you are with all the love and respect that I can possibly put together. But I feel I need to say some things here today. Our children are not too good to carry the cross. Our children are not too good to suffer for the name of the Lord. Our children are not set apart in such a fashion that it would hurt them to be persecuted a little bit. Our children must know the pain of the cross of separation from the world and identification with Jesus Christ if our world is going to have salvation available. Still the will of God for our young people to go to public schools and say, but I'm not dressing out. Still the will of God for our young ladies to go to public school and say I'm still a virgin and I'm not ashamed of it. Still the will of God for our young men to look like young men and refuse to be a perverted homosexual and not be ashamed of it. Our children have got to carry the cross. If redemption's gonna come, it's when he laid down his own flesh. I full well remember having left the evangelistic field and going to Raleigh. Our daughter had hardly ever been around sinners. She'd been in a fostered 
cloistered type environment of strictly Pentecostals. Most of her early life was spent in a trailer behind a church somewhere. I'll be honest, on that first day of school, when I drove her there, I acted brave. I acted like it was wonderful, it's exciting. But when she got out of sight with her little ponytail and her skirt, I drove away crying and weeping because I felt like I was throwing her into a den of lions. And I knew she would be interrogated. And I knew that she would be assaulted. That she would hear things that she had never heard and see things that she had never seen. But she seemed to do all right. Because in her early years of school, they said, Christy, what do you want to be when you grow up? She said, a Christian. They said, where does your daddy work? She said, he doesn't work, he's a preacher. <laughs> they said, Christy, why do you wear skirts every day? We never see you wear pants. Why do you wear skirts every day? She said, Get a piece of paper. They got a piece of paper. She said, draw me a picture of a boy. And they drew a stick figure. She said, draw me a picture of a girl. And they put a skirt on. She said, that's why I wear skirts. I'm a girl. We've got to raise a generation of Pentecostal children and young people, we must put it in their lunchbox. We need to pack some things in their lunchbox. And one of them is this, that Pentecost is not a penalty. Pentecost is not a payment. Being Pentecostal is a privilege. We need to pack that into our children every day. We need to pack into their lunchbox to be right and stand alone is better than being wrong and carried on the shoulders of the wicked crowd. To be different is an honor. By virtue of divine selection, I was chosen to live like this. I was called to live like this. Not everybody gets this privilege. Not everybody responds like I responded.
What have you packed in my lunchbox, mommy? I'll tell you what else we need to put in there. We need to put in there that Bible quizzing is more important and more exciting than Little League. And let me preach to your parents. If sinners will take a day off job, off the job, buy Cokes and buy hats and long chairs and rent vans and put up banners and go to the Little League game and root for their team. Don't get all upset because the pastor wants to buy the Bible quiz team a uniform. And when the Bible quiz goes, you need to be there praying for them and supporting them and letting them know you're a VIP. You're one of God's most valuable players. What have you packed in my lunchbox, Mommy? We need to pack in there that the book is right. The book is right. He said this new convert met an agnostic. The agnostic was intellectual. The convert was simple. The agnostic said, don't tell me you're one of those Christians that believe the Bible. You know, one of those radical ones. The new convert said, oh yes, I believe the Bible. The agnostic said, surely you can't believe that junk about Jonah and the whale. Impossible for a man to survive that kind of a situation. She said, well, sure, I believe it. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. He said, well, explain it to me. She said, I can't explain it. She said, but I'll tell you what I do. When I get to heaven, I'll ask him. He said, and what are you going to do if Joan ain't there? She said, then you ask him. We need to raise some children that believe this book is right. Whatever the Bible says, it's the word of God. Woo! The book is right. The church is right. The pastor is right. Acts 2.38 is not a way of salvation. The way of salvation. I don't mean to be ugly, ladies and gentlemen, but it's not that we're right and they're right. It's that we're right and they're wrong. And our children need to know. I don't care if they live in the better part of town. I don't care if they're more prompt about paying their bills. I don't care if their boys are more handsome. I don't care if they got better cars. I don't care if they got bigger churches. I don't care if their steeples are taller. If they hadn't been born again of water and spirit, they're not a child of God. And they need to be born again.
They need to be able to quote Deuteronomy 6 and 4. They need to know 1 Timothy 3.16. They need to know Colossians 2, 8 through 10. They need to know that God is only one. They need to know that Jesus is not a second person in a fictitious trinity, but he's the only person of divinity. They need to know he's not Jehovah Junior. They need to know he's the mighty God. The everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. I want to express my feeling here. And perhaps I stand alone. I'm radical, I know. But if my young people and my, and my own children must leave my home and leave the church, if they must go away from God, I'd whole lot rather they go to a goat-roping redneck tavern, a rodeo, a ball game, a pool hall, a movie show, or a disco dance than to go join a Trinitarian church. Because I can get them out of a disco dance hall easier than I can get them out of deception. If you're going to leave my church, don't go to a Trinitarian church. That's a big insult. You may be seated. Let me hurry. A lady, when I first went to Raleigh, had come for a while out of a Trinitarian church. One Sunday she was gone. They told me that she had gone back. And so I called her after church. And this was my approach. I said, sister, I missed you this morning. I'm sorry that you were not in church. I, I even heard that you'd gone to another church. She said, yes, sir, I did. I said, well, I want to apologize to you. I said, I feel deeply moved that I owe you an apology. She said, what do you mean, Brother Huntley? I said, well, apparently I failed you. Obviously, I failed you. Because if you can leave our church and go to a Trinitarian church, evidently I never did put in your lunchbox what you needed. Somehow or another, you never got it. Because if you get put into you what you need to be put in you, you may drink beer, but you won't ever make a confession for Christ. When you get ready to get right with God, you'll know where to go and you'll know how it's supposed to be done. That's why our teachers on every Sunday morning, every time they get together, have got to tell them there's only one way to God. It's Acts 2.38. I would like for just a moment, by scripture, with the help of my good friend, Brother David Hennigan. This is a good man right here. I love Brother David Hennigan. Brother Hennigan was the soloist at our wedding. His dad was my wife's pastor. And Brother David Hennigan has been a true friend to me. And I love him. Read for us. I want to show you why we have lost 
some of our Pentecostal children from the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse number 32. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given to another people. And thine eyes. I don't believe God wants us to raise them in the church for them to make people in the world money. No. And thine eyes shall look and fall with longing. will look and fall for longing. For them all the day long. You're going to want to see them, but they won't come home. And there shall be no might in thine hand. And you'll have no power to bring them back. Thou shalt beget sons and daughters. You'll beget sons and daughters. But thou shalt not enjoy them. And you won't enjoy them. For they shall go into captivity. They'll go into captivity. Alcoholism, drug addiction, promiscuity. Because. And this is why. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness. With joyfulness. With joyfulness. And the reason you're going to lose them is not what you're doing. Right. But it's how you're doing it. And with gladness of heart. Because you haven't served me with joyfulness and gladness of heart. For the abundance of all things. Of everything I've given you. You're going to lose your children. Griping, murmuring, groaning, complaining, fault-finding. It's not enough that you pay your tithes. You got to do it with joy. It's not enough that you go to prayer meeting. You got to love going to prayer meeting and do it with joy. It's not enough that you attend church. You need to enter his gates. with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. It's not enough that you obey all the standards. You gotta be glad about not going the way of the world. You got to be glad about not going to the ways of the world. Woo! He said, because you didn't serve me with joy. If there's anything I feel our movement needs right now, is to break through this mechanical Pentecostalism. It's to break through this robot Pentecostal Christian coming in, setting down, paying tithe, living holy, and no joy. No wonder David said, Restore unto me the joy, the joy of thy salvation. Then will I teach transgressors thy way, and sinners will be converted when the church serves God with joy.
You may be seated. Let me hasten on. It's probably because this is what my mother packed in my lunchbox. When I was a child, we didn't even have a ride to church. We had no car in our family until I got 16 and would walk to work the grocery store and made enough money to buy us a family car because my daddy never was at home. My mother raised me and my brother. And on Sunday mornings, while we were waiting on our ride to come pick us up for church, you see, every day of my life that I remember being home, my mother was packing my lunchbox. She woke me and my brother up every morning standing at our door saying, Rise, boys, and give God the glory. And my mother was packing my lunchbox. She was packing my lunchbox. And on Sunday, we didn't wait till we got to church. We got up early, we got ready, we went in on the sofa where we could see we had one, our house was just straight through apartment, just straight through, stay in the front room, see all the way in the back, you know. We'd sit on the couch with the door open so we could see when the ride drove up and we'd get the hymnal out and my mother and my brother and I would sing every song we knew while we were waiting on our ride. Church had already started. I wonder what would happen on your next Sunday morning if all of your saints, when they get up in the morning, instead of fussing and a grappin' and a groaning and a bickering and a kicking the cat, get the songbook out and sing all the way to church. I was glad when they said unto me, I was glad when they said unto me, you talk about a Holy Ghost revival breaking out. We got to do it with joy or we're going to lose our children. There is a verse of scripture that here a while back startled me. It shook me. And that verse of scripture is 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 7 through 10. I'd read it for years, but I never got what it was saying. The Bible said that David or Solomon, Solomon did all that was in his father's heart. Solomon did not do what David did because David didn't build a temple but there was a temple in his heart and because the temple was in his heart his son built a temple church 
It's more than monkey see and monkey do. It's more than just, oh, the kids are looking. Let me get it right here. Somehow or another, they're able to go beyond the facade. They're able to go beyond outward action. And children have a way to tap in to what's really in the heart. And that's why we have got to be sure that this is more than on our bodies but in our hearts. After this morning, I'd like to challenge us to a new attitude of what Pentecostalism is all about. Our homes, our churches, our Sunday school classes, our youth groups should be training camps for Pentecostal champions. Where we are conditioning, grooming, disciplining, and training a champion for God. Son, I know you don't understand all this, but one day God's people's going to be in a bind, and they're going to need somebody. Someday God's going to need a man, and when he does, you're going to be waiting in the wings because I'm training you not to be a secular genius, but to be a spiritual dynamo. There's nothing wrong with secular success, monetary gain, or physical positions. But we need to go back to teaching our kids the greatest of all positions is a child of God, a prayer warrior, a bus driver, a Bible study. Hey, son, I'm raising you, and God's going to do something in you. God's going to do something through you. You're going to be a champion for God. Several of the people that I will mention at this time are no doubt in this building. I trust I have my story straight. I'll bring them to you as quickly and as accurately as I possibly can. Brother Anthony Mangan is sitting over here. I remember your mother telling, I'm talking about some champions. I heard your mother speak one time and she told about how the, the quarterback on the high school football team became injured. And they came to your home and said, let Anthony play. Just this one game, we need him. Did that happen? Yeah, it happened. His mother's response was, if all the prayer and all the fasting and the reputation that your daddy has given to this city means no more to you than that. Get out of hell. You know why? Son, I'm raising you. God's going to need a champion. There's going to be a day that men are going to need an evangelism conference to go to. 
God's going to use you to touch young ministers all over the world. I'm grooming you to be a champion. I remember hearing Brother Urshan tell of how that he would come in at night and his dad would get up and smell his breath. And Brother Urshan said after his dad smelled his breath, apparently it wasn't like it ought to be. His dad would shove him to his knees, put his hands on his head, and say, God, either save him or kill him. In other words, I ain't raising a dud. This is a training camp for champions. I don't know how you feel, but before I leave this world, I'm not a champion, but I'd like to raise a champion. I'd like to coach a champion. I'd like to give to my generation a champion. I talked to Elder Dean, the father of many of our ministers, boys about my age. One of his sons is renowned, greatly gifted and talented, Dan Dean. Elder Dean told me in a private conversation of how that when Dan was just a little boy, he was at the altar praying one night. He said he had his hands up. And he said while he had his hands up, Elder Dean said, I went over there. And I said, God, anoint these hands. God, anoint these fingers. And a champion went into training. Doug Davis Jr. is here somewhere. His choir, I think, will be singing at the Foreign Mission Program following us here shortly. And they were building a church. Doug is gifted with a keyboard, writes marvelous songs, a superb talent from God. When they were building the church, Brother Hennigan, Doug Davis Sr. came in one day and he saw Doug Jr. with a power saw in his hand. His eyes got huge. He said, wait. Turn that thing off. Put it down. Anybody can run a saw. But son, those hands, they're the hands of a champion. Don't ever take them around power equipment. You've been raised to encourage people by music and to set an atmosphere for the preaching of the Word of God. You're a champion. Brother Mike Williams is here today and his dad, both of them. By permission, I tell this story. Here a while back, Brother Mike Williams built a superb church plant, multi-million dollar complex. When he got through, some of the saints in Brother Williams' church said to Brother Williams, kind of a left-handed statement. I'm sure they didn't mean harm. They said, how do you feel now that your son has done what you can't do? How, how does it feel to see your boy do what you haven't been able to do? And you know, Brother William is one of the greatest Christians, a real champion. He just smiled. But apparently that thing kind of got to burning on him. And during the night, he awoke 
with this thought in his mind. I may not be able to do what Mike Williams has done, and I may not ever build a building like that, but I have done one thing that Mike will never be able to do. I gave the world a Mike Williams. Is there anybody here that would like to raise a champion out of your youth group, out of your home, out of your Sunday school room? You see, before Paul could say, I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished my course. Then he talked about the crown of righteousness. Before Paul was at liberty to make his farewell address, he first had to write these words to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it is in thee also. Then Paul could say, I am now ready to be offered. Timothy is coming behind me. Timothy is coming behind me. And Timothy has got what I had. And Timothy loves this truth like I Church, you're not ready to leave here until you got somebody to take your place. When the sun set on my text, this unnamed lad had a story to tell. I would have loved Brother Hennigan to went home with him. When he burst into the presence of his mother, she could tell this had been an unusual day. Son, what have you been doing today? Oh, Mom, I wish you could have been there. Mother, have you ever heard of the Nazarene teacher they call Jesus? Sure, son, everybody's heard of him. Mother, I saw him today feed 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. Mother, I wish you could have been there. Because the exciting part about it is, Mother, he did it with my lunch. I wish you could have been there to see it, Mom. What you put in my lunch. When he took it, he fed 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. We must never underestimate the far-reaching effects of what is packed in a lad's lunchbox. Here's what that lunch did. It was the solution to the Savior's question. It was sufficient to satisfy a multitude. It was touched by Jesus.
It was distributed to the disciples. It filled a need. It was more than enough. And it caused men from Tiberias to take shipping, searching for the Savior because of what a mother put in a boy's lunch. Mommy, what have you packed in my lunchbox? Would you bow your heads? Time is gone, and God forbid that I would go beyond my allotted time. But if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you've got children, if you've got grandchildren, maybe there's some ladies in this audience today that are actually carrying children right now. I'm going to turn my home into a training camp. I'm going to put something in his lunchbox. And someday, it may prove to be the raw material for a miracle. Let's all stand before the Lord right now, if you will. Everybody all over the building.